part one section eight of experiments and observations on different kinds of air by joseph priestley this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain part one section eight queries speculations and hints i begin to be apprehensive lest after being considered as a dry experimenter i should pass with many of my readers into the opposite character of a visionary theorist a good deal of theory has been interspersed in the course of this work but not content with this i am now entering upon a long section which contains nothing else the conjectures that i have ventured to advance in the body of the work will i hope be found to be pretty well supported by facts but the present section will i acknowledge contain many random thoughts i have however thrown them together by themselves that readers of less imagination and who care not to advance beyond the regions of plain fact may if they please proceed no farther that their delicacy be not offended in extenuation of my offence let it however be considered that theory and experiment necessarily go hand in hand every process being intended to ascertain some particular hypothesis which in fact is only a conjecture concerning the circumstances or the causes of some natural operation consequently that the boldest and most original experimenters are those who giving free scope to their imaginations admit the combination of the most distant ideas and that though many of these associations of ideas will be wild and chimerical yet that others will have the chance of giving rise to the greatest and most capital discoveries such as very cautious timid sober and slow-thinking people would never have come at sir isaac newton himself notwithstanding the great advantage which he derived from a habit of patient thinking indulged bold and eccentric thoughts of which his queries at the end of his book of optics are a sufficient evidence and a quick conception of distant analogies which is the great key to unlock the secret of nature is by no means incompatible with the spirit of perseverance in investigations calculated to ascertain and pursue those analogies section one speculations concerning the constituent principles of the different kinds of air and the constitution and origin of the atmosphere etc all the kinds of air that appear to me to be essentially distinct from each other are fixed air acid and alkaline for these and another principle called phlogiston which i have not been able to exhibit in the form of air and which has never yet been exhibited by itself in any form seem to constitute all the kinds of air that i am acquainted with acid air and phlogiston constitute an air which either extinguishes flame or is itself inflammable according probably to the quantity of phlogiston combined in it or the mode of combination when it extinguishes flame it is probably so much charged with the phlogistic matter as to take no more from a burning candle which must therefore necessarily go out in it when it is inflammable it is probably so much charged with phlogiston that the heat communicated by a burning candle makes it immediately separate itself from the other principle with which it was united in which separation heat is produced as in other cases of ignition the action and reaction 
which necessarily attends the separation of the constituent particles, exciting probably a vibratory motion in them. Since inflammable air, by agitation in water, first comes to lose its inflammability, so as to be fit for respiration, and even to admit a candle to burn in it, and then comes to extinguish a candle, it seems probable that water imbibes a great part of this extraordinary charge of phlogiston, and that water can be impregnated with phlogiston, is evident from many of my experiments, especially those in which metals were calcined over it. Water having this affinity with phlogiston, it is probable that it always contains a considerable portion of it, which phlogiston, having a stronger affinity with the acid air, which is perhaps the basis of common air, may by long agitation be communicated to it, so as to leave it oversaturated, in consequence of which it will extinguish a candle. It is possible, however, that inflammable air, and air which extinguishes a candle, may differ from one another in the mode of the combination of these two constituent principles, as well as in the proportional quantity of each, and, by agitation in water, or long-standing, that mode of combination may change. This we know to be the cause with other substances, as with milk, from which, by standing only, cream is separated, which by agitation becomes butter. Also many substances, being at rest, putrefy, and thereby become quite different from what they were before. If this be the case with inflammable air, the water may imbibe either of the constituent parts, whenever any proportion of it is spontaneously separated from the rest, and should this ever be that phlogiston, with which air is but slightly overcharged, as by the burning of a candle, it will be recovered to a state in which a candle may burn in it again. It will be observed, however, that it was only in one instance that I found that strong inflammable air, in its transition to a state in which it extinguishes a candle, would admit a candle to burn in it, and that was very faintly, that then the air was far from being pure, as appeared by the test of nitrous air, and that it was only from a particular quantity of inflammable air, which I got from oak, and which had stood a long time in water, that I ever got air which was as pure as common air. Indeed, it is much more easy to account for the passing of inflammable air into a state in which it extinguishes candles without any intermediate state, in which it will admit a candle to burn in it, than otherwise. This subject requires and deserves farther investigation. It will also be well worth while to examine what difference the agitation of air in natural or artificial seawater will occasion since acid air and phlogiston make inflammable air, and since inflammable air is convertible into air fit for respiration, it seems not to be improbable that these two ingredients are the only essential principles of common air, for this change is produced by agitation in water only, without the addition of any fixed air, though this kind of air, like various other things of a foreign nature, may be combined with it. Considering also what prodigious quantities of inflammable air are produced by the burning of small pieces of wood or pit-coal, it may not be improbable, but that the volcanoes, 
with which there are evident traces of almost the whole surface of the earth having been overspread, may have been the origin of our atmosphere, as well as, according to the opinion of some, of all the solid land. The superfluous phlogiston of the air, in the state in which it issues from volcanoes, may have been imbibed by the waters of the sea, which it is probable originally covered the surface of the earth, though part of it might have united with the acid vapour exhaled from the sea, and by this union have made a considerable and valuable addition to the common mass of air, and the remainder of this overcharge of phlogiston may have been imbibed by plants as soon as the earth was furnished with them. That an acid vapour is really exhaled from the sea, by the heat of the sun, seems to be evident from the remarkably different states of the atmosphere in this respect in hot and cold climates. In Hudson's Bay, and also in Russia, it is said that metals hardly ever rust, whereas they are remarkably liable to rust in Barbados and other islands between the tropics. See Ellis's Voyage, page 288. This is also the case in places abounding with salt springs, as Nantwich in Cheshire. That mild air should consist of parts of so very different a nature as an acid vapor and phlogiston, one of which is so exceedingly corrosive, will not appear surprising to a chemist, who considers the very strong affinity which these two principles are known to have with each other, and the exceedingly different properties which substances composed by them possess. This is exemplified in common sulphur, which is as mild as air, and may be taken into the stomach with the utmost safely, though nothing can be more destructive than one of its constituent parts, separately taken, viz. oil of vitriol. Common air, therefore, notwithstanding its mildness, may be composed of similar principles, and be a real sulphur that the fixed air which makes part of the atmosphere is not presently imbibed by the waters of the sea on which it rests may be owing to the union which this kind of air also appears to be capable of forming with phlogiston for air is evidently of the nature of an acid and it appears in fact to be capable of being combined with phlogiston and thereby constituting a species of air not liable to be imbibed by water phlogiston however having a stronger affinity with acid air which i suppose to be the basis of common air it is not surprising that uniting with this in preference to the fixed air the latter should be precipitated whenever a quantity of common air is made noxious by an overcharge of phlogiston the fixed air with which our atmosphere abounds may also be supplied by volcanoes from the vast masses of calcareous matter lodged in the earth, together with inflammable air. Also, a part of it may be supplied from the fermentation of vegetables upon the surface of it. At present, as fast as it is precipitated and imbibed by one process, it may be set loose by others. Whether there be, upon the whole, an increase or a decrease of the general mass of the atmosphere, is not easy to conjecture, but I should imagine that it rather increases. It is true that many processes contribute to a great visible diminution of common air, and that when by other processes it is restored to its former wholesomeness, it is not increased in its dimensions.
but volcanoes and fires still supply vast quantities of air, though in a state not yet fit for respiration, and it will have been seen in my experiments that vegetable and animal substances, dissolved by putrefaction, not only emit phlogiston, but likewise yield a considerable quantity of permanent elastic air, overloaded indeed with phlogiston, as might be expected, but capable of being purified by those processes in nature by which other noxious air is purified. That particles are continually detaching themselves from the surfaces of all solid bodies, even the metallic ones, and that these particles constitute the most permanent part of the atmosphere, as Sir Isaac Newton supposed, does not appear to me to be at all probable. My readers will have observed that not only is common air liable to be diminished by a mixture of nitrous air, but likewise air originally produced from inflammable air, and even from nitrous air itself, which never contained any fixed air. From this it may be inferred that the whole of the diminution of common air by phlogiston is not owing to the precipitation of fixed air, but from a real contraction of its dimensions, in consequence of its union with phlogiston. Perhaps an accurate attention to the specific gravity of air procured from these different materials, and in these different states, may determine this matter, and assist us in investigating the nature of phlogiston. In what manner air is diminished by phlogiston, independent of the precipitation of any of its constituent parts, it is not easy to conceive, unless air thus diminished be heavier than air not diminished, which I did not find to be the case. It deserves, however, to be tried with more attention, that phlogiston should communicate absolute levity to the bodies with which it is combined, is a supposition that I am not willing to have recourse to, though it would afford an easy solution of this difficulty. I have likewise observed that a mouse will live almost as long in inflammable air when it has been agitated in water, and even before it has been deprived of all its inflammability, as in common air, and yet that in this state it is not, perhaps, so much diminished by nitrous air as common air is. In this case, therefore, the diminution seems to have been occasioned by a contraction of dimensions, and not by a loss of any constituent part, so that the air is really better, that is, more fit for respiration than, by the test of nitrous air, it would seem to be. If this be the case, for it is not easy to judge with accuracy by experiments with small animals, nitrous air will be an accurate test of the goodness of common air only, that is, air containing a considerable proportion of fixed air. But this is the most valuable purpose for which a test of the goodness of air can be wanted. It will still, indeed, serve for a measure of the goodness of the air that does not contain fixed air, but a smaller degree of diminution in this case must be admitted to be equivalent to a greater diminution in the other. As I could never, by means of growing vegetables, bring air which had been thoroughly noxious to so pure a state as that a candle would burn in it, it may be suspected that something else besides vegetation is necessary to produce this effect, but it should be considered that no part of the common atmosphere can ever be in this highly noxious state, 
or indeed in a state in which a candle would not burn in it but that even air reduced to this state either by candles actually burning out in it or by breathing it has never failed to be perfectly restored by vegetation at least so far that the candles would burn in it again and to all appearance as well and as long as ever so that the growing vegetables with which the surface of the earth is overspread may for anything that appears to the contrary be a cause of the purification of the atmosphere sufficiently adequate to the effect it may likewise be suspected that since agitation in water injures pure common air the agitation of the sea may do more harm than good in this respect but it requires a much more violent and longer continued agitation of the air and water than is ever occasioned by the waves of the sea that do the least sensible injury to it indeed a light agitation of air in putrid water injures it very materially but if the water be sweet this effect is not produced except by a long and tedious operation whereas it requires but a very short time in comparison to restore a quantity of any of the most noxious kinds of air to a very great degree of wholesomeness by the same process dr hales found that he could breathe the same air much longer when in the course of his respiration it was made to pass through several folds of cloth dipped in vinegar in a solution of sea salt or in salt of tartar especially the last statical essays volume one page two hundred sixty six the experiment is valuable and well deserves to be repeated with a greater variety of circumstances i imagine that the effect was produced by those substances or by the water which they attracted from the air imbibing the phlogistic matter discharged from the lungs perhaps the phlogiston may unite with the watery part of the atmosphere in preference to any other part of it and may by that means be more easily transferred to such salts as imbibe moisture sir isaac newton defines flame to be fumus candens considering all smoke as being of the same nature and capable of ignition but the smoke of common fuel consists of two very different things that which rises first is mere water loaded with some of the grosser parts of the fuel and is hardly more capable of becoming red-hot than water itself but the other kind of smoke which alone is capable of ignition is properly inflammable air which is also loaded with other heterogeneous matter so as to appear like a very dense smoke a lighted candle soon shows them to be essentially different from each other for one of them instantly takes fire whereas the other extinguishes a candle it is remarkable that gunpowder will take fire and explode in all kinds of air without distinction and that other substances which contain nitre will burn freely in those circumstances now since nothing can burn unless there be something at hand to receive the phlogiston which is set loose in the act of ignition i do not see how this fact can be accounted for but by supposing that the acid of nitre being peculiarly formed to unite with phlogiston immediately receives it and if the sulphur which is thereby formed be instantly decomposed again as the chemists in general say thence comes the explosion of gunpowder which however requires the reaction of some incumbent atmosphere 
and without which the materials will only melt and be dispersed without explosion. Nitrous air seems to consist of the nitrous acid vapor united to phlogiston, together, perhaps, with some small portion of the metallic calx, just as inflammable air contains of the vitriolic or marine acid and the same phlogistic principle. It should seem, however, that phlogiston has a stronger affinity with the marine acid, if that be the basis of common air. For nitrous air being admitted to common air, it is immediately decomposed, probably by the phlogiston joining with the acid principle of the common air, while the fixed air which it contained is precipitated, and the acid of the nitrous air is absorbed by the water in which the mixture is made or unites with any volatile alkali that appears to be at hand. This, indeed, is hardly agreeable to the hypothesis of most chemists, who suppose that the nitrous acid is stronger than the marine, so as to be capable of dislodging it from any base with which it may be combined. But it agrees with my own experiments on marine acid air, which show that, in many cases, this weaker acid, as it is called, is capable of separating both the vitriolic and the nitrous acids from the phlogiston with which they are combined. On the other hand, the solution of metals in the different acids seems to show that the nitrous acid forms a closer union with phlogiston than the other two, because the air which is formed by the nitrous acid is not inflammable, like that which is produced by the oil of vitriol or the spirit of salt. Also, the same weight of iron does not yield half the quantity of nitrous air that it does of inflammable. The great diminution of nitrous air by phlogiston is not easily accounted for, unless we suppose that its superabundant acid, uniting more intimately with the phlogiston, constitutes a species of sulfur that is not easily perceived or catched, though, in the process with iron, and also in that with liver of sulfur, Part of the redundant phlogiston forms such a union with the acid as it gives it a kind of inflammability. It appears to me to be very probable that the spirit of nitre might be exhibited in the form of air, if it were possible to find any fluid by which it could be confined, but it unites with quicksilver as well as with water, so that when, by boiling the spirit of nitre, the fumes are driven through the glass tube, figure 8, they instantly seize upon the quicksilver through which they are to be conveyed, and uniting with it, form a substance that stops up the tube, a circumstance which has more than once exposed me to very disagreeable accidents in consequence of the bursting of the vials. I do not know any inquiry more promising than the investigation of the properties of nitre, the nitrous acid, and nitrous air, some of the most wonderful phenomena in nature are connected with them, and the subject seems to be fully within our reach. Section 2. Speculations arising from the consideration of the similarity of the electric matter and phlogiston. There is nothing in the history of philosophy more striking than the rapid progress of electricity. Nothing ever appeared more trifling than the first effects which were observed of this agent in nature as the attraction and repulsion of straws and other light substances. It excited more attention by the flashes of light which it exhibited. We were more seriously alarmed at the electrical shock and the effects of the electrical battery 
and we were astonished to the highest degree by the discovery of the similarity of electricity with lightning and the aurora borealis with the connection it seems to have with water sprouts hurricanes and earthquakes and also with the part that is probably assigned to it in the system of vegetation and other the most important processes in nature yet notwithstanding all this we have been more puzzled than ever with the electricity of the torpedo and of the angyli tremblante of surinam especially since that most curious discovery of mr walsh's that the former of these wonderful fishes has the power of giving a proper electrical shock the electrical matter which proceeds from it performing a real circuit from one part of the animal to the other while both the fish which performs this experiment and all its apparatus are plunged in water which is known to be a conducting substance perhaps however by considering this fact in connection with a few others and especially with what i have lately observed concerning the identity of electricity and phlogiston a little light might be thrown upon this subject in consequence of which we may be led to consider electricity in a still more important light many of my readers i am aware will smile at what i am going to advance but the apprehension of this shall not interrupt my speculations how chimerical soever they may be thought to be the facts the consideration of which i would combine with that of the electricity of the torpedo are the following first the remarkable electricity of the feathers of a parakeet observed by mr hartman on account of which may be seen in mr rosier's journal for september seventeen seventy one page sixty nine this bird never drinks but often washes itself but the person who attended it having neglected to supply it with water for this purpose its feathers appeared to be endued with a proper electrical virtue repelling one another and retaining their electricity a long time after they were plucked from the body of the bird just as they would have done if they had received electricity from an excited glass tube secondly the electric matter directed through the body of any muscle forces it to contract this is known to all persons who attend to what is called the electrical shock which certainly occasions a proper convulsion but has been more fully illustrated by father Bacheria. see my history of electricity page 402 lastly let it be considered that the proper nourishment of an animal body from which the source of all materials of all muscular motion must be derived is probably some modification of phlogiston nothing will nourish that does not contain phlogiston and probably in such a state as to be easily separated from it by the animal functions that the source of muscular motion is phlogiston is still more probable from the consideration of the well-known effects of vinous and spiritous liquors which consist very much of phlogiston and which instantly brace and strengthen the whole nervous and muscular system the phlogiston in this case being perhaps more easily extricated and by a less tedious animal process than in the usual method of extracting it from mild aliments since however the mildest aliments do the same thing more slowly and permanently that spiritous liquors do suddenly and transiently 
it seems probable that their operation is ultimately the same. This conjecture is likewise favoured by my observation that respiration and putrefaction affect common air in the same manner, and in the same manner in which all other processes diminish air and make it noxious, and which agree in nothing but the emission of phlogiston. If this be the case, it should seem that the phlogiston which we take in with our aliment, after having discharged its proper function in the animal system, by which it probably undergoes some unknown alteration, is discharged as effet by the lungs into the great common menstruum, the atmosphere. My conjecture, suggested, whether supported or not, by these facts is that animals have a power of converting phlogiston from the state in which they receive it in their nutriment into that state in which it is called the electrical fluid that the brain besides its other proper uses is the great laboratory and repository for this purpose that by means of the nerves this great principle thus exalted is directed into the muscles and forces them to act in the same manner as they are forced into action when the electric fluid is thrown into them ab extra i further suppose that the generality of animals have no power of throwing this generated electricity any farther than the limits of their own system but that the torpedo and animals of similar construction have likewise the power by means of an additional apparatus of throwing it farther so as to affect other animals and other substances at a distance from them in this case it should seem that the electric matter discharged from the animal system by which it is probably more exhausted and fatigued than by ordinary muscular motion would never return to it at least so as to be capable of being made use a second time and yet if the structure of these animals be such as that the electric matter shall dart from one part of them only while another part is left suddenly deprived of it it may make a circuit as in the laden vial as to the manner in which the electric matter makes a muscle contract i do not pretend to have any conjecture worth mentioning i only imagine that whatever can make the muscular fibres recede from one another farther than the parts of which they consist must have this effect possibly the light which is said to proceed from some animals as from cats and wild beasts when they are in pursuit of their prey in the night may not only arise as it has hitherto been supposed to from the friction of their hairs or bristles etc but that violent muscular exertion may contribute to it this may assist them occasionally to catch their prey as glow-worms and other insects are provided with a constant light for that purpose to the supply of which light their nutriment may also contribute i would not even say that the light which is said to have proceeded from some human bodies of a particular temperament and especially on some extraordinary occasions may not have been of the electrical kind that is produced independently of friction or with less friction than would have produced it in other persons as in those cases related by bartholin in his treatise de luce animalium see particularly what he says concerning theodore king of the goths page fifty four concerning gonzaga duke of mantua 
page 57, and Gothofred Antonius, page 123, but I would not have my readers suppose that I lay much stress upon stories no better authenticated than these. The electric matter in passing through non-conducting substances always emits light. This light, I have been sometimes inclined to suspect, might have been supplied from the substance through which it passes, but I find that after the electric spark has diminished a quantity of air as much as it possibly can, so that it has no more visible effect upon it, the electric light in that air is not at all lessened. It is probable, therefore, that electric light comes from the electric matter itself, and this being a modification of phlogiston, it is probable that all light is a modification of phlogiston also. Indeed, since no other substances besides such as contain phlogiston are capable of ignition, and consequently of becoming luminous, it was on this account pretty evident, prior to these deductions from electrical phenomena, that light and phlogiston are the same thing, in different forms or states. It appears to me that heat has no more proper connection with phlogiston than it has with water, or any other constituent part of bodies, but that it is a state into which the parts of bodies are thrown by their action and reaction with respect to one another, and probably, as the English philosophers in general have supposed, the heated state of bodies may consist of a subtle vibratory motion of their parts, since the particles which constitute light are thrown from luminous bodies with such amazing velocity, it is evident that, whatever be the cause of such projection, the reaction consequent upon it must be considerable. This may be sufficient not only to keep up, but also to increase the vibration of the parts of those bodies in which the phlogiston is not firmly combined, and the difference between the substances which are called inflammable and others which also contain phlogiston may be this, that in the former the heat, or the vibration occasioned by the emission of their own phlogiston, may be sufficient to occasion the emission of more, till the whole be exhausted, that is, till the body be reduced to ashes whereas in bodies which are not inflammable, the heat occasioned by the emission of their own phlogiston may not be sufficient for this purpose, but an additional heat ab extra may be necessary. Some philosophers dislike the term phlogiston, but, for my part, I can see no objection to giving that, or any other name, to a real something, the presence or absence of which makes so remarkable a difference in bodies as that of metallic calces and metals, oil of vitriol and brimstone, etc., and which may be transferred from one substance to another, according to certain known laws, that is, in certain definite circumstances. It is certainly hard to conceive how anything that answers this description can be only a mere quality, or mode of bodies, and not substance itself, though incapable of being exhibited alone. At least, there can be no harm in giving this name to any thing, or any circumstance, that is capable of producing these effects. If it should hereafter appear not to be a substance, we may change our phraseology, if we think proper. 
On the other hand, I dislike the use of the term fire as a constituent principle of natural bodies, because, in consequence of the use that has generally been made of that term, it includes another thing or circumstance, viz. heat, and thereby becomes ambiguous, and is in danger of misleading us. When I use the term phlogiston as a principle in the constitution of bodies, I cannot mislead myself or others, because I use one and the same term to denote only one and the same unknown cause of certain well-known effects. But if I say that fire is a principle in the constitution of bodies, I must, at least, embarrass myself with the distinction of fire in a state of action, and fire inactive or quiescent. Besides, I think the term phlogiston preferable to that of fire, because it is not in common use, but confined to philosophy, so that the use of it may be more accurately ascertained. Besides, if phlogiston and the electric matter be the same thing, though it cannot be exhibited alone, in a quiescent state, it may be exhibited alone under one of its modifications, when it is in motion, and if light be also phlogiston, or some modification or subdivision of phlogiston, the same thing is capable of being exhibited alone in this other form also. In my paper on the conducting power of charcoal, see Philosophical Transactions, volume 60, page 221, I observe that there is a remarkable resemblance between metals and charcoal, as in both these substances there is an intimate union of phlogiston with an earthy base, and I said that, had there been any phlogiston in water, I should have concluded that there had been no conducting power in nature, but in consequence of a union of this principle with some base, for while metals have phlogiston, they conduct electricity, but when they are deprived of it, they conduct no longer. Now the affinity which I have observed between phlogiston and water leads me to conclude that water, in its natural state, does contain some portion of phlogiston, and according to the hypothesis just now mentioned, they must be intimately united, because water is not inflammable. I think, therefore, that after this state of hesitation and suspense, I may venture to lay it down as a characteristic distinction between conducting and non-conducting substances, that the former contain phlogiston intimately united with some base, and that the latter, if they contain phlogiston at all, retain it more loosely. In what manner this circumstance facilitates the passing of the electric matter through one substance, and obstructs its passage through another, I do not pretend to say, but it is no inconsiderable thing to have advanced but one step nearer to an explanation of so very capital a distinction of natural bodies, as that into conductors and non-conductors of electricity. I beg leave to mention in this place, as favourable to this hypothesis, a most curious discovery made very lately by Mr. Walsh, who being assisted by Mr. De Luc to make a more perfect vacuum in a double or arched barometer, by boiling the quicksilver in the tube, found that the electric spark, or shock, would no more pass through it than through a stick of solid glass. 
he has also noted several circumstances that affect this vacuum in a very extraordinary manner but supposing that vacuum to be perfect i do not see how we can avoid inferring from the fact that some substance is necessary to conduct electricity and that it is not capable by its own expansive power of extending itself into spaces void of all matter as has generally been supposed on the idea of there being nothing to obstruct its passage indeed if this was the case i do not see how the electric matter could be retained within the body of the earth or any of the planets or solid orbs of any kind in nature we see it make the most splendid appearance in the upper and thinner regions of the atmosphere just as it does in a glass tube nearly exhausted but if it could expand itself beyond that degree of rarity it would necessarily be diffused into the surrounding vacuum and continue and be condensed there at least in a greater proportion than in or near any solid body as newton supposed concerning his ether if that mode of vibration which constitutes heat be the means of converting phlogiston from the state in which it makes a part of solid bodies and eminently contributes to the firmness of their texture into that state in which it diminishes common air may not that peculiar kind of vibration by which dr hartley supposes the brain to be affected and by which he endeavours to explain all the phenomena of sensation ideas and muscular motion be the means by which the phlogiston which is conveyed into the system by nutriment is converted into that form or modification of it of which the electric fluid consists these two states of phlogiston may be conceived to resemble in some measure the two states of fixed air viz elastic or non-elastic a solid or a fluid end of section eight end of part two